Um, this morning, we're starting a series on the book of Colossians. Uh, I hope you have a Bible with you. Please do turn to the book of Colossians. And we're going to be looking at the first half of chapter one, looking at what it is to be a healthy church. Okay, so uh, let's read together Colossians 1 and verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ, uh, apostle of Christ Jesus, sorry, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Yay. There's quite a lot there, isn't there? Uh, It's one of these times when uh, the difference between the Greek language and the English language proves a bit of a challenge, because Paul has kind of just kept going in a couple of long sentences here that kind of spill out one after the other. Uh, the, the phrases spill out one after the other as he's full of... It's like the heart with which he's praying kind of gets communicated in the way that he writes. It just kind of spills and flows. And we're going to jump into it and see what God has to say to us through this passage this morning. Um, first thing then, though, about the kind of to give a bit of an overview of what's going on in this passage is uh, that a healthy church... Can you guess what my next line is? Anyone? Just see if you're awake. Uh, People that haven't seen the PowerPoint presentation. Sorry, guys. 
No, no, it's nothing to do with what there's in the picture. That's maybe a bit leading. I just want to say, a healthy church sees the big picture. That's what I'm after saying. And what, there you go, see, no one got that. Very interesting. Um, What Paul's doing here is writing to a little new church and expanding their horizons significantly and helping them to see the big picture. And so that's what we're going to be doing uh, as we look at the passage this morning. We're going to be seeing a bigger picture in a number of ways. Okay, so let's start here. This is what is now in western Turkey. If any of you know modern geography, where it says Smyrna at the top there, that's modern Izmir. So uh, this is western Turkey, and you can see over there towards the right, we have Colossi at the top of the Lycus River Valley as it flows into the Meander River. By the way, that's where the word meander comes from, because that river meanders a great deal. So that's where we got the... Anyway, there you go. So um, Colossi, right up there, right at the top end of the river valley. And uh, historians tell us that at this point in its history, in the first century, the city of Colossi was in decline. It was going down in the world, and it was quite small. The nearby cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis were on the up and up, and Colossi was a little backwater that seemed to have no future. Actually, it was the least important town to which Paul wrote. It was a little place that people didn't worry about too much. Uh, A church had begun there because of Epaphras going to preach. And uh, it makes it clear here that Epaphras is part of Paul's company. Epaphras had gone there and preached the gospel, and people had got born again. Paul had never been there. Paul had never visited this little place. And then he'd heard back from Epaphras, who at the time of writing was still back with Paul, come and gone, heard about this church in Colossae, and he said, I'm going to write them a letter and let them know that I'm thanking God for them, that I'm praying for them. And then he goes on to explain some things for them as well as they get going as a little church. So, uh, okay, that was <laughs> Ephesus. There we go. I'm quite enjoying having a clicker. It's a good thing. Okay. Um, Paul, at the time that he wrote this letter, this is just by way of background, and to help us understand the setting and the moment in which this letter was written, Paul, at the time that he wrote, was in chains. He was in prison, and uh, theologians have asked, where was he in prison at this time? The two places that we know he spent quite a bit of time in prison that it's recorded in the book of Acts are Caesarea and Rome, and of those two places, people have often thought that Paul was in Rome writing this letter. But actually, it says in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul says that he's been in prison frequently. And so he was in prison more often than those two times, and almost certainly was in prison in this region at some point, because he spent three years there. Between the years 52 to 55 AD, uh, Paul was living, by and large, in Ephesus. Ephesus, oh, there we go, Ephesus, that's what I'm trying to, I'm just enjoying that, really. He was, he was uh, living in Ephesus, and he was there preaching in the Hall of Tyrannus uh, for several years. And it says that in that period of time, that the word went out from uh, Ephesus into the whole region of Asia, which is what this region was called. And in that season, it seems that Epaphras went out from this center in Ephesus, where Paul was preaching the gospel, 
And the gospel went out into all of this region, not by Paul traveling everywhere, but by people in the company that was with him traveling here and there. Epaphras was one of those people, and he went there. And it seems likely that it was in this season that Paul wrote this letter, because at various points, he talks about the comings and goings that he hopes for between where he is and the town of Colossae. There's another letter that's in the New Testament called Philemon, which almost certainly was sent in the same package with the same people to the town of Colossae, along with the letter to the Colossians. It was written to a particular member of the Colossian church called Philemon, who had a runaway slave called Onesimus, who had become a Christian, whom Paul had got to know, and uh, he'd sent Onesimus with the letter saying, I just hope that you'll receive this runaway slave now, not harshly, but gently as a fellow brother. And Paul said several things. He said, I hope you might send Onesimus back to me again. And he says to Philemon, get a guest room ready, because I'm planning to come and visit you. He says here in the book of Colossians, I'm planning to come and visit you. Now, if Paul had got as far as the city of Rome, all of that would be quite unlikely for several reasons. One is that it's a long, long way. 1,200 miles in the ancient world was a long way to be sending letters back and forth about getting a guest room ready because I'm coming. That's one thing. Uh, But also, Paul's declared intent, recorded for us in Romans 15, was that he was going to Rome intending that it would be a stepping stone to go west, to Spain. And so it would be odd if he was already in Rome and saying, I'm coming back to Colossae. So what we've got going on here, almost certainly, is Paul in prison somewhere in this region, uh, probably in Ephesus, writing a letter to this church that has just been started. So Epaphras, who came and preached the gospel to them, hadn't come out of nowhere. He'd come from Paul and was part of a movement that was going on right through this region. The Bible records for us at least this many other churches in the region, in Smyrna, Laodicea, Sardis, Pergamum, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Hierapolis. There were probably others as well. There was a church planting movement going on in this area, which we might rightly call an apostolic movement, because Paul was writing to them as an apostle. He said, so Epaphras has come to you and preached the gospel to you, and you're born again, and there's a church there. And he introduces himself and says, right, now I'm writing to you as Paul. I am your apostle. The apostle to the Gentiles. Did you not know you've got an apostle? Isn't that good? And he writes and says, you're not just a little church in a corner somewhere. You're part of something bigger. And what you're part of is an apostolic movement. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, has people working with him to take the message about Jesus to the whole of this region of Asia. Now, that might be uh, kind of interesting in and of itself, but it's quite relevant to something that we don't often talk about for us today. This is not just a piece of history. As people who honour the scriptures, we want our life to be like the times of the New Testament. They are for us our final authority in all matters of faith and doctrine and how we live our lives. And so actually we want to be part of an apostolic movement ourselves. Paul didn't write to them and introduce himself to them as a bishop who would now take control of their affairs or who who would have authority to look after things for them 
in a controlling way at a local level. He didn't claim to have that kind of authority, but neither did he introduce himself simply as a friend who was kind of going to pray for them a little bit, offer them a little bit of support. He introduced himself as something rather different. He introduced himself as their apostle, as an apostle to, or the apostle to the Gentiles, and therefore their apostle, which was to be a blessing to them. What did it mean? for him to be their apostle. Well, the letter tells us that it means he took a really personal interest in them. Not that bishops and friends can't take a personal interest. But when he uh, wrote to them as an apostle, one of the things that he did was he took a personal interest in them. He knew individuals in the church and took an active interest in their lives. Onesimus, Philemon, and others that are listed at the end of the book of Colossians. He prayed for them. He helped them to understand the gospel, and he broadened their horizons and invited them to connect with other churches. In Colossians 4, it says, I want you to connect up with the church in Laodicea, just down the road. I've written them a letter as well. Could you swap letters? Could you read each other's letters? Could you connect up with the other churches in this apostolic movement nearby to you? And could you get involved, he says, in the wider movement, at least by praying for me as your apostle? So that's what they were, an apostolic movement. And the people who'd been born again in Colossae, I mean, they'd heard Epaphras preaching, they'd met with God, the word had come to them, they'd received it, they were part of a community of Christians in their region. Probably many of them had never, never travelled very far. And this letter comes and says to them, you know what, it's not just about you where you are, you're part of something much, much bigger. Something that is dynamic, yeah. something that is growing, Something that is about people and where the leadership is coming from someone who is dynamically involved and knows people and is actually spurring on growth right across the region. In OCC, uh, I think it's fair to say that over the last 30 years, we have known some of these dynamics ourselves. Across Oxfordshire... In the 1970s, there were two churches that formed the roots of what is now Oxfordshire Community Churches in the towns of Whitney, or the town of Whitney and the village of Aston, or Coates, and then Aston, they're kind of close together. Um, Out of those two churches, in the 1980s, there were churches planted elsewhere in the county in Wantage, Chipping Norton, and Oxford. Uh, In the next decade, churches planted in Bicester, Abingdon, Didcot, another one in Whitney, and then in the last 10 years, we've seen churches planted in, where's that? Carterton, uh, on Blackburn and Greater Lees. That's Swindon, off outside the county. We've supported a move there. Banbury, Tame, uh, Morton in Marsh, Kidlington, that's Paris. <laughs> supported people planting in Paris. And then also... It should, I don't know what it says, that should say Shipton under Witchwood, not Skipton. Skipton's in Yorkshire, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, anyway, um, there is a house church movement being started in the Witchwoods um, at the moment by people out of Whitney. Um, we don't see these churches as all coming under the direct control of a central authority, um, but neither are they all independent of each other. We're connected as a dynamic movement with common leadership. The fact that we work this way, the fact that we're part of a network of churches like this, I want to say it's not an accident of history that we kind of look like we do, 
but rather, time and again, at key points of decision-making, how are we going to work together? We've turned to scriptures like this in Colossians 1 and said, what was the dynamic that was going on right in the early church when they had an apostolic movement of churches being planted? How did they do leadership? How did they arrange themselves? And we've sought to have that kind of dynamic. People that have come into our kind of network of churches with other church backgrounds quite often just don't get how we do things. If you come from a Baptist church that was simply independent, as some are, or if you've come from a church, um, say a Catholic church or an Anglican church that is well connected structurally into a denomination, the way we do things can seem a little bit odd. So I just wanted to take a moment this morning whilst Paul is introducing the whole concept of an apostolic movement to the church in Colossae to try to do the same here this morning and say, we're part of that kind of thing too. And it's not random, but it's something that we find in the scriptures. That's part of opening up our vision. Actually, we're not just part of Oxfordshire community churches, as we've already talked about this phrase salt and light this morning. Oxfordshire community churches is part of a wider network called Salt and Light, uh, which has about 75 churches in the UK and many hundreds of churches around the world. You can ask someone that looks a bit older this morning and looks like they've been around the church for a while to explain a bit more of that history to you this morning. I'm not going to have time to take time to do that. But in the UK, Salt and Light in the UK, we have a common vision to pioneer, proclaim, and transform together. And we believe that we're able to do that much more robustly in a much stronger way together than if we were simply doing it all by ourselves. So these things matter. Practically, there's a couple of points coming up at which you can make a choice which would reflect a good understanding of this apostolic movement that we're part of. One is that something unusual is going to happen in March. Normally, for us, when we have area celebrations of the kind that Keith said is happening in two weeks' time, people come from around the county here. In March, they're not going to. The meeting is instead going to be in Whitney, which means we are all going to have to get to Whitney. We'll put on some buses and we'll make it straightforward for people. But there's going to be a choice in March to say, is that a week off? Or is it a chance to actually uh, make a choice to say, we know we're part of something bigger? The reason that we're doing that is we have these great new buildings in Whitney at the site of the King's School, and we want to celebrate together in them. That's why we're doing it. Uh, Also, in the next couple of weeks, you can choose to book in to transform. That would also, if you don't even quite understand what I'm talking about this morning, that would be the best way of finding out. Get along to transform and understand the significance of being part of something bigger. You might also, another thing that we do together in Salt and Light across the UK is training. Uh, We're privileged to have the King's Bible College and Training Centre here in this building. Mike Beaumont is going to be starting up a further training strand uh, called the Theological Training School, which will offer another way in for people across Salt and Light to do training, starting in September. And we run a pastoral training course as well for those who have a, have a calling to pastoral care. If you, you could sign up for those things, that's another way of understanding that there's something more that we can do together than we could do alone. Okay. These churches... Oh, I'm not going to click all the way back through. Those churches in Asia uh, were not just part of an apostolic movement associated with the Apostle Paul. 
Uh, they were part of a global church movement. It's really important for us to recognize as well that neither are we, oh, that's some sort of like bits, neither are we part of, just part of Oxfordshire Community Churches or just part of Salt and Light. We too are part of a global gospel movement. This church building uh, is the first church to be built in Antarctica, <laughs> which I thought was quite sweet. Um, it's been there for six years. It's a Russian Orthodox church serving the Russian research base, uh, a Russian research base in Antarctica. But since the same island also has Uruguayan and Chilean bases on it, they also do services in Spanish. Uh, and they baptize people in the South Sea. <laughs> so. <laughs> Paul thanks the church in Colossae, not just for having responded to his co-worker Epaphras. What he says is, I thank God for your faith and love because they've come from the gospel. The word of truth came to you. What you're really part of is a global gospel movement. He says, ever since you heard this gospel message and responded to it, you've had hold of that hope and it's it's cause faith and love to arise in you. And then he says in verse 6, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. So yes, we're part of a particular bit of the body of Christ, but the body of Christ globally is a global gospel movement where the gospel is continuing, even to this day, to go out into the world, even to places like Antarctica. Uh, Graham shared a word earlier that was about this, really, about the spread of the word of God. He spoke about how it's planted in us and it's bearing fruit in us. Paul talks about this gospel, verse 6, bearing fruit and growing which has echoes in it of Genesis chapter 1, where God says, go into all the world, be fruitful and multiply. Fruitfulness and growth is God's original intention for humanity. And in the new covenant, this is now being worked out, there's a wave of new life, a wave of people being born again as the gospel goes out, and it brings about growth, fruitfulness, multiplication. This is the movement that we're part of. This is part of the bigger picture. It's the same word that brings about both salvation and discipleship. That is to say, exactly, I'm just repeating what Graham said earlier, really. It was very helpful. uh, That the word comes to us. It's planted in us. It's brought about new life in us. It's the same word that keeps coming uh, to us and that grows in us, which causes us to keep growing in Christ to become more mature in him. Sometimes in our thinking, we have quite a big divide between the task of evangelism and the task of discipleship. And actually, there are some very different things about those two kinds of activity. But one thing that undergirds both of them is they're both part of the global gospel movement. It is the gospel, the word of truth, which gives rise to new life in us as we hear and understand it, And it's also the gospel which brings about ongoing growth in our Christian lives as we hear it and understand it. I feel I need to pause at this point and to ask a question. And the question is, uh, do we really believe it? 
Do we really believe that the word of God has this kind of power and life in it? I'm glad you do, Lulu. (laughs) I think what goes on in many of us, when we read in the scriptures or when someone like me says that the gospel works, it really works, something goes off in us a little bit like this, where we say, well, I know that's right, and I guess there's plenty of evidence about that, churches in Antarctica and people becoming Christians all around the world. And I know I'm supposed to believe it, but, you know, I'm not sure I do. I'm not quite sure I really believe it. And then the reaction in us gets all a little bit complicated. We all get a bit muddled up, and we um, probably then just put it to one side. (laughs) Think, oh, well, um, I'll get through the next week without having resolved this issue. But when an opportunity comes to speak the word of God to somebody, whether that's at home in our family or in our small group or at work, where there's an opportunity to speak the word of God and to expect it to change people, we don't always do it, do we? And that betrays the reality that we're not always quite so sure that the word of God really has that kind of power. And I suppose I want to just draw attention to that issue. And as we look forward to the spring, I'd like to suggest that we discipline ourselves to look that in the eye and and to seek to change that. Not just to sweep that uncomfortable truth under the carpet and say, oh, well, we're all going to heaven anyway. Let's ask God then. (laughs) To put the feelings away and sort of smile sweetly and keep going. Uh, But to recognize that that matters, it matters a great deal. It matters a great deal for us and our own growth. If we're not going to embrace the word of God as having the power to change us, we're not going to grow ever so much. And we're certainly not going to see the kind of growth that Paul's apostolic movement knew, of people becoming Christians all over the place. If we don't communicate it, because we're not sure really whether it works. Am I, is this making sense to you? You've all gone quiet, which can mean several things. <laughs> okay. I trust that that's making some sense. It is a regular battle that we have to undergo to believe God's word. It doesn't just happen like that for us who are believers. Uh, right back at the beginning of human history, uh, the serpent came to Adam and Eve and said, did God really say, well, to Eve and said, did God really say? And ever since then, we've had a battle. We know that God has spoken, but holding on to that and believing the word of God is a challenge for us. Even Jesus had to face temptation and battle in this area. When he was in the wilderness, the devil came to him and made, a, made several suggestions And each time Jesus replied and said, ah, but the word of God says this. He was determined to stand on the word of God in the face of conflicting thoughts and a range of different feelings, I'm sure. Um, There have been times personally when I have sought to take this battle on in a stronger way. I have to say, I don't know if this is obvious to everyone, but so every time I stand up to preach, some, I don't know, others of you who preach will know that something of this battle goes on in the process of preparing. You read the scriptures, you understand what they say, and then you think, oh, but do I believe that? 
And that's a journey that you have to go on in prayer and with God and say, God, would you help me believe that? I think that when we pray for those who are speaking God's word to be anointed, the largest part of that is actually an anointing to believe the truth and to be able to speak about it as if it's true, because it is true. In our small groups, I want to challenge those of you that are leading uh, the word sections of our small group meetings. Don't bypass this process. Don't serve up for people uh, a a study or looking at the scriptures that you don't know for sure that you believe. If you're going to ask people to open their scriptures and to look at them together, please go on that journey and wrestle with God and be honest about whether or not you believe this stuff before talking about it. Could you do that? It's an important journey to go on. And it flows into all of our life. One of the times that I got really serious with God was just before I took on leading the church here. And I thought, I've got to do something more. I've got to have some greater confidence in the word of God if I'm going to take on this task. And for me, I felt led to fast for three weeks, which was quite an interesting process. I know that others of you have done that kind of thing. It yielded in me a confidence in the word of God that... Um, I never knew was possible, actually. I'd lived with a certain level, and God delivered me into something much, much stronger. And uh, as I'm heading into this autumn, so no, that's not right. As I'm heading into this spring, um, uh, forgive me, uh, I guess I'm just feeling stirred again that it's a season for fighting for faith, really. Um, I'm looking ahead to Lent and thinking, well, that's quite a good prompt, isn't it? Um, I wonder what I could do in the run-up to Easter that would really seriously engage with this issue, with this battle. Um, Maybe fast for all of it. That would be difficult, wouldn't it? Um, I don't know. But I want to offer that out as a challenge to you as well and say, as well as fighting for faith in the specific moments, opportunities that come your way to share God's word, what about engaging with the battle just a bit more fully? Seeking God this spring, and seeking victory in that fight. Um, Because we really want to be wholeheartedly part of this global gospel movement. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, here's another thing. Um, Paul writes to the church and says, you're a great church, but you could be more mature. You could. Um, He starts off the letter by saying quite wholeheartedly to them, you're brilliant, you are. He says, I'm always, isn't it great that the Apostle Paul can write and say, I'm always thanking God for you. Like, whenever I pray, I thank God for you, because I just think you're brilliant. I think you've got faith, and I hear you've got love, and it's come from the gospel, and it's really, really wonderful. Uh, Actually, there's still more. Part of Paul's apostolic role was to see what else they could yet grow into, as well as all the life and joy and love and faith that they had. What else was there? And he prays for them, and he prays out his vision, his hope of what they could become. In verse 10, it says that uh, I, we pray that you, may live, we, that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. There's this thing here, again, about bearing fruit, A few verses earlier, Paul has said, the gospel bears fruit and grows. And then in verse 10, he prays that they would bear fruit, ringing that bell, bear fruit, gospel. 
multiplication, growth, that they would bear fruit in every good work. So let's just pause there. Because I think, well, actually I don't think, I know that amongst us, this wonderful body of people, there's a lot of good work that is done. A huge amount of good, whether it's serving in local community, caring for family, caring for neighbours, uh, being nice at work to the people around us, serving people there. There's all kinds of good work that we do. And I thank God for it. I feel a little bit like Paul when he says, I oh, just thank God that you've got this faith and this love. And I, think, I thank God for the good works that are done by us and amongst us. It's, it's no small thing, and it's great. I do covet this outcome that Paul also prays for, that we would bear fruit in every good work. He's praying for this dynamic of the Spirit of God at work in the gospel, that the gospel would go out and bear fruit in our good works, that we wouldn't just be known as people that are nice. That's no bad thing. It's better than being known as people that are toe rags, isn't it? So that's, that's good. But wouldn't it be wonderful if the word of God was constantly going out in the midst of our good works, changing, as Graham was speaking there, landing, being planted in people. And, bring, and I pray for that as a kind of maturity. Um, being juvenile is quite fun, actually. Um, but juveniles typically are not reproducing. I mean, they're not multiplying. That kind of comes later in life, doesn't it? You kind of get through your adolescent bit, and then it's a sign of maturity that you're having children. That's, is that fair? Yeah? And so Paul said, it's great that you've got what you've got, but there's something more. This word of God thing of multiplication and growth, that's a kind of maturity that I pray that you would get hold of. In verse 11, he says something that I find both tremendously challenging and very wonderful. He also prays that they may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. In the Greek, those things are more connected than in the NIV translation suggests. Endurance and patience, joyfully. Huh. There's something else that is a sign of maturity. It's one thing to learn to endure... But to endure joyfully is just a whole further step, isn't it? To find, the jo- to find the truth that the joy of the Lord is our strength is a step of maturity. And I think we need those things. We need that kind of maturity. I think, I think yeah, there's all kinds of great stuff amongst us, but that we could be more mature in both of those areas. Paul prays, actually, I jumped over a little bit, how he prayed that they would get there. He prayed, let's read it together. He says, asking God to fill you with all the knowledge of his will, so with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of God and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. So he prays, he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And that is how they're going to get to this place of bearing fruit in every good work. And he prays that God would strengthen them with all power according to his glorious might. And that's how, verse 11, they'll gain great endurance and patience joyfully, giving thanks to the Father. So these aspects of maturity are not something that we have to to work up, um, but... In this, as in all aspects of the Christian life, we live by grace. 
And so Paul prays for gifts to come from God, that the Colossian church would receive those gifts of understanding God's will and strength from God, which would then enable them to gain this wonderful maturity of seeing fruit in every good work and to endure joyfully, which I think are tremendous prizes for us to seek from God too. Just like to read a story to you, which just gets at the heart, I think, of how this works. It's a story about someone called Willa, uh, a young woman called Willa, who was hospitalized. This is a true story, by the way. It's not one of those preachers, you know how it goes. Anyway, this is a true story that I read in the week and was tremendously encouraged by. Um, Willa was hospitalized and classified as schizophrenic undifferentiated type. She was an unwanted child whose birth caused her parents to get married. She was alternately abused and neglected as a child by her parents, who were both alcoholics and potentially violent. She was very bright, but everyone took advantage of her because she had no sense of intimacy or balance in relationships. She had homosexual and heterosexual relations with ministers, doctors, and others who were supposed supposed to help her. She was in the second year of graduate school when she finally broke down and couldn't finish her examinations. In the hospital where she was placed, she sat for hours in the chair, rocking her doll, Bill, and staring into space. Then she would get up, act in a bizarre manner, dance around, talk to herself, hassle the nursing staff for information about her record, and then go back and sit in a chair and rock her little doll. The head nurse on the floor told the the person who'd recorded this story that they expected Willa would never leave the hospital. One day, however... While she was sitting in her chair, someone came up behind her, put arms around her and said, the silence is not empty, there is purpose for your life. So she turned around, but there was no one there. The power of this experience, which was of the Holy Spirit, began to build sanity in her and to enable her to distinguish illusion from reality. Of course, she couldn't explain this to her Freudian therapist, (laughs) the legitimacy of her experience, but she played his game and said the right things, and in the same mind was out of hospital within three weeks, when they'd thought she would never be able to get out at all. She came to talk to this guy who was recording this story and was eventually baptised and returned to the profession for which she was training. And um, the therapist who'd recorded this makes a comment that the intimacy, that the intimate touch of the Holy Spirit runs far deeper and is far stronger than any kind of family history of violence and abuse. There's um, something that happens when the Holy Spirit comes to us, which is tremendously strengthening. Strengthening beyond our imagining. It's just interesting to read that 
that what the Holy Spirit whispered to this young woman was, there is purpose for your life. He spoke to her of his will for her, his will that she would live purposefully. The knowledge of the will of God, that's what Paul prayed for. I pray that God would fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And as he does that, it transforms everything. It's immensely strengthening for us. Last week as I spoke, I simply encouraged us to open ourselves to receive from God, to acknowledge in this calendar year that we need to receive from him. And having expanded this church's vision of what they're part of, Paul prays that they just get filled up. (laughs) They get filled with the knowledge of God, they get filled with God's strength, And he does that because he expects that when that happens, when that happens, then they will endure joyfully and they'll bear fruit. And I I long for all of us that we would experience that joy in whatever we have to endure. I know what some of you have to endure, and I know you need the joy of the Lord. Not just to cope, but you need the joy of the Lord. And, uh, And I think we long together to see fruit being born in the word of God going out in amongst all the good things that God has led us to do. Amen? Amen. Um, so I had this picture last week, just to remind us, that what we want to do is to receive from God. So I, Keith, I'm going to hand back over to you. I don't know what you, how you want us to do this. But maybe we could start just by being quiet. We'll have a couple of minutes quiet. And just to, like to ask you, in your own heart and mind... And it might help to put your hands out so you're using your God-given body as well. Just to be open to God and say, yeah, God, I recognize. I recognize that there's more for me, more maturity, and I would just love to receive from you by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning. So let's just be quiet and open ourselves to the living God.